Hello, uh, welcome to the Mythgard Movie Club. Um, we're here tonight talking about Alien, um, which is obviously a, a well-known uh, movie from a, a long time ago. Not not a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but um, <laughs> still pretty long ago from a pretty far away place. Um, yeah, that was interesting. So let's start though. Before we begin, um, actually, let's uh, have some announcements. So um, if you don't know, our big annual uh, Mythgard Signum University conference is coming up in June here, just uh, not that far away. It's already May, so um, just about a month and a half away. There's still time to register um, and get lodging and all of that. Um, the preliminary schedules actually just came out. If you go to signumuniversity.org slash mythmoot, uh, you'll be able to uh, link to those and see the preliminary schedule. And if you're presenting, you'll get to see when you might be doing that, um, which I know some of us here are uh, on the panel and perhaps some uh, of you listening in are as well. Um, then also just recently announced uh, Baymoot in August, and I don't have the exact date on hand, uh, but Baymoot in the uh, Oakland area, I, I believe it's happening in Oakland and, uh, and, and the Bay area, um, will, uh, will be happening there in August. So check that out. Uh, there's information again, uh, signumuniversity.org slash event. You'll see that. Also under the events uh, for Signum University, uh, we've got some symposia coming up here shortly. Uh, thesis theater with um, Franny Moore Kyle and, um, uh, pardon me, uh, John, um, I'm forgetting his last name off the top of my head, uh, will be coming up presenting their theses. Um, and then in, uh, I think just next week or a week and a half, uh, Serena is going to be talking, Serena Higgins is going to be talking about how to present at conferences. So if you are presenting at MythMoot or one of our other moots coming up um you may want to join in on that and see what she has to say and then tom shippey um always a favorite talking about his newest book laughing shall i die which of course is a very uh norse idea uh and so he's talking about uh the vikings there and uh his research and and uh that'll be great there's a there's a whole panel uh discussion going on there and, and tom shippey will be there Coming up, just starting next week, actually, just here in a few short days, we've got our summer semester at Signum University with uh, three of our classic courses, uh, Science Fiction Part 1, uh, which is a great class. I took that. Uh, I did not take the other two, but I hear they're also great. Intro to Old Norse uh, and the Story of the Hobbit. Um, some really good classes starting up next Monday, um, but you can still register and, and join those as an auditor or as a, a student. If you're looking for a certificate or an MA. Um, and then uh, this summer, we're also doing Signum Academy. Uh, those of you who don't know about that yet, uh, last year we did the Hobbit Camp, which went over really well with a lot of libraries. I think, I believe we had like something like 60 some libraries involved in homeschool groups and that type of thing. Um, I know we started uh, promoting that a little earlier this year and we're expanding it to four different um, books that are covering about a two week period for each of them. Um, there's a little bit of overlap, but you can see the books there. If you know any libraries or librarians or know um, any, you know, like homeschool groups or, or even just, you know, maybe families with lots of kids 
or something, you can, uh, you know, let them know about that. Anyone can join for free. Um, and uh, it's a really great program. And then you can see all of the, the URLs there to get more information about all of these things. Slide is not enough. There we go. Oh. Um, there we go. There it is. Um, okay. Just want to make sure you guys know the next movies that are coming up in Movie Club. Um, June fourteenth, we're going to talk about Solo, um, because we're sort of on the Star Wars, uh, you know, bandwagon. We might as well keep going. That's fine. <laughs> Um, but that actually looks like a really interesting movie. I think that'll be a good panel discussion um, with some of the same people who talked about it, um, uh, talked about The Last Jedi last time. Um, and then uh, in July, we're gonna talk about Edward Scissorhands. We kind of realized that we front-loaded the first uh, half of the year with a lot of space movies. Um, unintentionally, that's just sort of the way that it went was a lot of, um, you know, kind of space opera, you know, Wrinkle in Time and Hitchhiker's Guide and all these Star Wars movies and now Alien. Um, so um, hopefully this will be a little, you know, a nice little change of pace to do um, something fantasy, something a bit smaller. Um, so I uh, hope people are interested to check that out. Um, so before we kind of start taking questions and get into the alien discussion here. Um, want to have everyone go around on the panel and quickly introduce yourself and say a couple sentences about who you are in case uh, the audience are not familiar with you. Um, I guess I'll go first. Uh, my name's Kat Sass. I, uh, with uh, Curtis Wyant, we run this uh, movie club and we also do a podcast together called Cat and Kurt's TV Review um, where we talk about uh, speculative TV shows. So, so far we've done Buffy, Angel, uh, the new series of Doctor Who, and Battlestar Galactica. Um, and uh, who knows what we'll do in the future, but that remains to be seen. Um, and uh, I'm an alum of Signum University. I uh, finished up my degree about a year ago, and uh, looking forward to the next Mythmoot to see the next year of graduates, which is coming up soon. Very exciting. Um, yes, and Arthur's already making suggestions about what we should do next, um, which is the old Battlestar Galactica, which it has come up as an option. So we're not totally, uh, you know, against it maybe. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm Kurt. I'm the other part of Cat and Kurt, and uh, all of what Cat said about that is also true for me. Um, I am also a Signum alum, um, and I'm also presenting at MythMoot, so come hear my talk. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't have anything more to say about me. I guess I'll go next. Um, Ashley Thomas. Um, I am the nerdy blogger. I'm also a alum from Signum. Uh, I uh, finished up uh, last summer. So um, Alien is in my top five favorite movies of all time. So I'm really excited to talk about it tonight. Um, Ashley, will you be in the uh, graduation ceremony of Mythmoot? I will. So, very yeah. excited about that. I'm Dominic Nardi. I um, uh, have a small blog, Nardi Views, where I occasionally spout off on uh, science fiction and fantasy issues. Um, 
I um, um, also have a paper coming up at Mythmoo um, about the politics of Dune. Um, uh, Dune is one of my favorite sci-fi books, so that should be fun. And Alien is definitely in my top three or four movies, so looking forward to this tonight. Very cool. Well, and everybody, um, we've got a few questions already, but please do put your questions and comments into the questions box, and we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Kind of want to throw it out with like the general um, traditional icebreaker um, to anybody who wants to, you know, pick it up. Uh, how did you come to Alien? Um, I know some of you clearly two of you if you're listing it among your favorite films ever have probably been aware of this movie for quite a while well probably everyone here is aware of the movie but um uh i know of at least one other person on this panel who only just recently watched it for the first time um and i'm somewhere in between so uh yeah whoever wants to take that and run with it what what was your story of you know your introduction to this universe Well, maybe maybe we'll go newest first, um, which is me. So, well, I, well, the way you worded that is um, a little ambiguous because it's not my introduction to the universe. I have watched other uh, films in the series, um, but that said, having watched this for the first time just about a week ago, um, yeah, I don't. I mean. It, it's hard because obviously I know a lot of the cultural references. Um, I didn't necessarily know all of them. Um, I'm blanking on specific ones that like maybe I realized were, but um, you know, there's like certain things like obviously the alien like coming out of the chest is pretty iconic and have seen variations of that in other media um, and that kind of thing. Um, I think the thing that I wasn't quite prepared for was the pacing of it. And I feel like maybe maybe this says more about me than, you know, the movies um, of maybe that time, but I always sort of pick up on that, um, just how different the pacing is when, when I'm coming to it now. Uh, whereas like other films that I've watched maybe from the same era, um, you know, before I'm I'm not as like, like, uh, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey might be another one where people might think about the pacing, but because I saw that when I was much younger, maybe, uh, and didn't, didn't have sort of the um, fast paced movies of today <laughs> to sort of be my guide, um, you know, there's a little bit different uh, expectation there, I think, going into it. Um, yeah, so I don't, I mean, we can get into like specifics, but my, uh, I, I did find it hard to stay focused because I really did want to stay focused on the movie and not like try to take notes or, you know, look at my phone or, you know, things like that um, while watching it for the first time. Um, and I mostly succeeded in those goals, but I do have to say it was hard to like sort of keep attention at, at certain points. You sound like a millennial. <laughs> uh, you Did know? you, would you, so um, would you use the uh, the word dated for this movie, do you think? Coming to it now. Well, I mean, 
I actually, I mean, it depends on what you mean by dated because I think I, I'm not opposed to like slower movies and like more thoughtful, you know, films and that kind of thing. I do think, um, I actually think like from a graphic perspective um, and we'll get to like some shots later on, like it actually holds up really well in some of the effects and like the set design and stuff. And there is like, I, I don't know how much Alien itself is playing on previous, um, you know, sorts of designs and that kind of thing. But, you know, it, it certainly, I certainly saw things from later films that seem like they're callbacks to Alien, although I suppose they could be callbacks to like earlier tradition as well. Um, you know, more than just the the one iconic scene that I mentioned already, but just like even in, in the general design of, you know, how things look. So in that term, in those terms, I would say, no, I actually thought, I, maybe my surprise was more the other way at how well it sort of held up. Um, but yeah, some of the, some of the editing and some of the sort of that type of thing, I think maybe would be considered a little dated just in terms of film, filming techniques and, and preferences of today. Right. Well, and, the director's and... cut. Oh, go ahead. Finish. Oh no, the director's cut actually has a t somewhat tighter editing and speeds things up a bit. So it might be worth checking out if that was an issue. Does he? Um, when was the director's cut made? Oh gosh, it was either '99 or 2003. I always forget. But it's it's not technically a director's cut. It's just a special edition. Sure. Um, but it was partly geared towards more modern audiences. They cut down on some of the, the slow approach to the planet and you know, try, they add a few more deleted scenes to increase the tension. So yeah, okay. it's there. So taking some pacing, like more contemporary pacing probably into account, whether yeah, yeah. by design or accidentally, just because that's when it was done. Oh no, Ridley Scott said deliberately that he wanted to speed up the pacing for more modern audiences. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually, there's a question on the pacing here um, asking to sort of address the slow burn technique um, and, you know, how well it works or, or does it work well, maybe in other films and books um, or, I mean, and in this film as well, I'm sure. Like, is there, you know, is there maybe like a point to the agonizing, you know, <laughs> at times um, sort of like. Uh, yeah, slowness of it. Um, I'll throw that out maybe to those who are more fans of the movie. And I'm not saying I disliked it. I, I did like it and I definitely want to go revisit it again. Um, I meant to revisit it again before we had this discussion. Um, but yeah, those of you maybe who have seen it longer, like what are your takes on sort of that slow burn idea and the pacing of it and, and where it fits in maybe with other films, shows, movies? Uh, books even I I mean I definitely notice the different the difference in pacing that you're saying of this I mean it's always hard to make statements like this cuz how do you how do you know it doesn't feel like it would be done like this today um sure but on the other hand I um um I you know I think many of us find ourselves more distractible these days with the uh, amount of devices we have around us and um, 
with those and um, the amount of things there are to watch, just of like trying to keep up with all the content that's sort of coming out and like how many different shows you're following or, you know, episodes or movies you want to see in a given week. Um, so I find myself more impatient as a viewer, I think, and probably just it's, you know, 10 or 15 years later than when I first saw this movie. And so, you know, my taste yeah. has probably changed a bit too. Um, but even given that I, um, and I don't think I've seen this movie in at least like five or six years. Um, I really was surprised by how I didn't find the slow burn slow, slow in a negative sense of I'm find my, my mind wandering or going to look at other things or kind of wondering when the speed is going to pick up. Um, so I was sort of, I, I mean, I think just the fact that it's, I mean, we can get more into this later, but um, the way that it's structured as sort of mystery questions that it's not mm -hmm. just about exploring the environment, although there is that, and it's a very interesting environment to look at and to explore, but you're led to kind of unravel the mysteries beat by beat of following, you know, the, the progress of the alien as it sort of grows and as they kind of learn about what it can do and what its qualities are and as we they learn unravel the mysteries of who are the other people on their ship and what are their secrets and that sort of thing um so i i didn't find it sort of dawdling in that sense well so a question another question that comes in and sorry dom and ashley you guys can obviously answer as well but um just maybe throwing this in the mix as well um is whether anyone actually likes the pacing and thinks it's like actually a strong part and you know to your point cat about you did you, you know it, it was slow but not like in a bad way like i mean I, I guess that's how i sort of take the idea of the slow burn that you know it that there's a payoff at the end not that it's like mm. bad but that it's actually you're just it's sort of like a delayed gratification sort of thing maybe um so yeah thoughts thoughts on that yeah, so I, I as I as I indicated, I do like the pacing a lot uh, for for two reasons. Um, <clears throat> I, I also I saw the movie when I was like twelve, so you know it's been with me for a while. Um, but I, I think the pacing really gives the movie a lot of its verisimilitudinous, and I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about this later. Um, but this universe just feels real, and one of the reasons why is because it, the movie takes the time to show us this universe, show us the world, show us the people, show them doing things. So, you know, when, the, like we, we, when they, when the ship lands on the planet, we actually see them flipping the little switches, you know, steering the ship, uh, you see the little graphics, you see, and it, it looks like people doing things that we think they should be doing if they have to land a, if they have to land a large ship on a planet. Um, you know, most sci-fi movies these days, would cut a lot of that out, so it just looks like the ship goes and lands on a planet, you know, like a like a helicopter or something, and it just it doesn't have that gravity, it doesn't have that weight, it doesn't feel like you know a bunch of professionals on a ship uh, taking the time to do things, um, which brings which is the second point with this the slow burn, and that you actually get to know these people a bit. Um, you know, I, interestingly, I just watched Alien Covenant um, a few days ago as I was preparing for this. Alien Covenant is the latest Alien film. And it just struck me that by the end of the film, 
you know, they, 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 the film jumps so quickly into killing people off that I felt like I didn't even know these people. But, you know, I felt like an alien. I knew the personalities, at least, of all the characters. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know their, their backstory. I'm sure there's like a, a Wikipedia fan page where you can find that out. But I got a sense of who they were and some of their relationships. And you need time to do that. So um, I don't think this pacing works for every, every film. Um, but I, I appreciated it here. Well, and my understanding, um, I haven't seen the direct sequel, Aliens, yet. Mm -hmm. um, but my understanding is that the pacing changes quite a bit, oh, or yeah. at least the style. So along with the that genre. may have also, mm -hmm. and yeah, so I mean, because I definitely going into it, like if you were to ask me before, I, it would have been like, yeah, there's like a ship full of people and they, like there's an alien just like hunting them all down and whatever. And like, that's kind of true, I guess. But like, that's obviously not descriptive of what this movie actually is. And there's a lot of exploration and sort of, so a lot of, a lot more world building than I was expecting for yeah. sure. Um, and especially because I have seen Prometheus. And so like, I was not expecting to see a giant telescope alien, you know, guys. And mm. I had no idea that that was in this movie. Um, even though I, you know, seen this later, later made, but earlier in time, you know, of, within the story uh, movie um, Prometheus. So I, that to me is, is kind of interesting that um, I just had no idea and obviously, like, the whole, like, exploring to see what's, you know, preventing them from getting transmission off and, like, mm -hmm. you know, going in and seeing this alien ship and, like, finding these eggs and, like, all these, like, that's obviously a major plot point of the movie that I just had no idea about going into it, um, you know, versus what I thought it would be is, you know, like, more of a Friday the 13th in space kind of thing. Um <laughs> It brings up another point in that I think the slow burn lets this, it, it, it complicates the film. It, it, it's not, and we're, I think we're going we're gonna to talk about genre later, but this isn't just a horror film. It's actually, it's a science fiction, and it's not just a science fiction horror film. It's actually a science fiction film. And I think partly because that slow burn, it's, it's a film that, that indulges in the wonder of space, the, the, the majesty of space, the exploration, the unknown. And the first half of this movie is, you know, could have turned out very differently. It could have turned out like a Space 2001 or a Star Trek. You have a, bunch, you have a crew going to an alien planet, they're exploring. It's only, you know, about halfway into the film that they, they find out that the egg is this parasite and it kills them all. Um, yeah, so there's, 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 it, there's a lot of, there's very much a science fiction element to this that I think I appreciate. And then a lot of the alien sequels later, like Alien 3, they're just straight up horror movies. They don't really have that, that science fiction aspect to him. Um, Kate said, Kate Neville in the chat said something similar about the, the pacing is there to let you get to know the characters that, mm -hmm. and she says that even though she hadn't seen it in years, she remembered all of them, maybe not their names, but remembered distinctly who they were and, you know, their personality, maybe what their job was and that, um, that they weren't just red shirts. Um, mm -hmm. And which is kind of funny because like you were saying, not just in backstory, but I don't think we get to know the characters 
super well in the sense that they're not very well, um, I guess, defined by maybe today's standards of, you know, all their history and their backstory and their subplots and motivations. And like, you know, I mean, maybe the most basic motivation most of them have is to just like get home and get paid. Like, you know, there's not like we don't get kind of the soap opera elements between them. And yet you do come away feeling like they're memorable and they're distinct and that they have characters. There's a lot of really subtle character work that goes on in this film that um, like a lot of it I didn't really pick up on until, you know, until I read a bit more about the film, um, just, just in terms of relationships. Like you see, you see that the way uh, Parker interacts with Lambert, for example, is very different from the way he interacts with Ripley. Like, He's, he's a bit flirtatious with Lambert, but he also has this weird chivalrous side. Like, he wants to be the action hero. He sees himself as, like, the knight in shining armor. Um, and that's, you know, that's like, really important for the, you know, for, the, for their ending. Um, you know, and just, then just seeing Ash as, like, the science officer and seeing his, his quirkiness. And you know, so they're, like, little subtle cues. But, yeah, you're right. Like, they don't, they don't ever say, oh, well, my... You know, my dad died, and that's why I wanted to go on this mission, or you know, so on and so forth. It's more the character building is more about their personalities than it is about um, like their backstories or even their motivations. Well, and it's it's based in the acting because it's one of the reasons why I had such a hard time coming up with titles for these slides because there's really not much dialogue in this movie. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, there is in the sense, but it's very functional. It's very pragmatic of you know like really mostly apart from like the dinner scene most scenes are about you know how are we going to do this job or how are we going to survive or what's the plan they're not talking about themselves so the personalities have to come through in the you know the physical performance i guess ashley you started to say something about um the fact that it switches genre, yeah, you know, between movies. Um, do you want to speak for a minute about like what do you see as the differences of how would you characterize the different? Like we agree that the pacing and the genre is different, but how do we sort of define that? Well, uh, yeah, speaking about Alien, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely it is both a science fiction film and it's both a horror film. Um, whereas um, what, one of the things I really like about it as a science fiction film is that the slower pacing lends itself to world building, um, which is, you know, of course, hallmark of science fiction. Um, when, uh, then, you know, when you had the Aliens uh, sequel, um, the genre shifted from sci-fi horror to uh, sci-fi action film. Um, so... You know, while it's still, you have that element of horror, the, the aliens are, are, you know, terrifying. And in some degree, you've got similar kinds of shots with um, things in shadow. One of the things I noticed this time around um, watching Alien again, was I had forgotten there was like this steady um, pulse uh, kind of sound going through in the background where you get that much heavier in Aliens, uh, which the uh, the instruments they were using to, to track uh, the Xenomorph. Um, so those, those are just a couple of things. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier the Aliens in my top five um, favorite films of all time. 
Um, that list kind of changes a lot. I, <laughs> but Aliens, Alien always stays in, in the top five for me. Um, but uh, I'm actually newer to the film. I didn't watch it until maybe three or four years ago, um, which uh, I've, I have this very long list of movies people keep making for me that I haven't seen um, because apparently I only watch comic book movies or Lord of the Rings. Um, so, um, but uh, once I watched Alien, I was like, I have to watch the rest of these because I love it. Um, but I actually saw Prometheus first. Um, uh, so um, when I watched Alien for the first time, um, I was surprised uh, how much Prometheus was actually like Alien and, you know, saw all these similar things like, oh, it all makes sense now. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I started, I wanted to watch it because I was reading a book with some friends at the time um, by uh, Jeffrey Overstreet, um, who's a film critic. And um, he he referenced um, Alien as a good one. Like if you don't like horror films, which at the time I really didn't, um, as one to watch because it does have those elements of horror, but it's not as it's not a slasher movie, you know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I could talk a lot more. And I'm yeah, I've heard I've or, heard it or, described. Or is it? You know, a, a horror movie for people who don't like horror movies. You know, oh I know yeah, it's... we can debate how true that is, but. Um, that's that's one of the cliches that's thrown out there. You know, there was a toy line for aliens for kids when I was younger. I used I to I loved I loved that. Like I used to play with those toys. Like I don't know. I mean, it's it's not a Friday the Thirteenth, but I'm not quite sure who and like Kenner or whatever thought like kids should be playing with toys from a movie like this. It's very 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 odd marketing decision. <laughs> Up there with uh, the Ghostbusters toys, right? Yeah, Ghostbusters isn't that scary, though. That's another a future movie club discussion. Maybe. Yeah, we can, we can talk <laughs> about that one quite a bit. Um, Arthur, Arthur Harrow is describing it as a horror movie wrapped in science fiction, hidden yeah. inside a conspiracy movie. Mm. Well, and so speaking of the conspiracy aspect, that was, I would say, that's definitely another piece that I didn't necessarily expect. Um, I had seen Prometheus, so, you know, that had elements that seemed to me that are in a lot of like sort of particularly more modern uh, movies around, um, you know, just big bad corporation, you know, doesn't really uh, like its, you know, workers too much. And I, I don't think I was expecting and I don't know why I wasn't like, I mean, it's not like, you know, people had those same feelings in the seventies, <laughs> but I don't think I was expecting that same level of sort of like conspiracy type thing, which um, I guess that it, it feels more like that's something uh, that you get a lot more of in movies today than, than maybe of the time. But I don't know, maybe, maybe I just oh. didn't pick up on it as much when I was a kid or something. Um, oh, there are a lot of conspiracies uh, in the seventies. Like, uh, uh, I, I was going to say, as the political scientist here, like, what yeah. is your... No, this Watergate was, stuff, Nixon, right? Watergate, like, uh, all, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all the President's Men. Uh, what's that famous one with Robert Redford? The Flight of the Condor, I think it is. The, mm. you know, uh, big conspiracy. Yeah, so, you know, so conspiracy movies, anti-corporate. And that was that was a, a sentiment in the 70s. Um, and that said, I, 
I have always felt that it's it isn't it's 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 a bit of an odd twist in this movie in that um you know the the idea that Ash is this robot and there's this, this company conspiracy um and it's it's it adds a lot to the movie but I always have trouble articulating what it adds um it because it's 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 not the world building even there is very minimal I mean we know there's this company we know there's this conspiracy we don't really like there's no big reveal of their motives. There's no, you know, presumably, and presumably they want the alien as a, you know, again, erasing all knowledge of Prometheus and those other movies. They, pre they presumably want this alien as a as a bioweapon or of some sort. Uh, I don't know. I guess I'd be kind of, kind of curious to hear what you all had to think of that that twist and how it fit in the, the structure of the movie and the world building, what it added. I remember, oh, well, I remember go ahead, go ahead. The, the first time watching Alien uh, not knowing, even though I'd seen Prometheus first, I didn't know that Ash was a robot, and I found that very, yeah. very shocking, um, yeah. especially because you got the white goose burning everywhere, and that's gross. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought that, wow, that's a, it's like, uh, old Bilbo is a, uh, is a robot. That's very interesting. Um, that's how my brain works. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, Kate Neville uh, says she kind of took it as the dark side of Star Wars and Star Trek, um, and also noted that it, you know, came out the same year as Apocalypse Now, and you know, so there's maybe some parallels to draw there. Um, and then someone, uh, Joshua Grohl, refers to it as a thinly veiled Vietnam allegory. So uh, hmm. I, I don't know. Um, I, I admit I wasn't thinking of those things while I was watching it, um, but I can see sort of in context how those, uh, you know, there may be some similar ideas being played with there. Yeah, I'm not, I'm still thinking about your question of what it adds, because I do agree that it, it the Ash plot adds something. Um, the main thing that strikes me on rewatch after having seen the newer movies um, with um, Fassbender, right, um, mm -hmm. as the as the android is, yeah. I think he's good in those movies. You know, I think he's you know does a fine performance. Um, but the the difference being, they're very much about his androidness. Like yeah. it, you know, it's very much him exploring. His, the nature of himself and his place in the world and you know what you know what is his role and you know why is he like or unlike the humans and everything and I, uh, to me it, it feels like it kind of has one foot in the kind of like Blade Runner tradition which is perfectly fine there's nothing wrong with that but then I think it's funny to go back and rewatch this and realize there's none of that with Ash I mean mostly because you don't find out until the end that you know he is an android but there isn't any of the soul searching he's just sort of i don't know his story is not about that i feel like he becomes more part of the world building aspect of he's there to serve the story rather than the story being built around the exploration of his character uh, for, for me ash adds some kind of element of betrayal um um, he's representative of like corporate greed. 
um, basically like, you know, he's there to make sure that whatever happens goes according to uh, whatever the company wants. Um, they're not actually, it, it removes all control from any of the humans um, in the crew. Um, that's, that's what Ash um, brings about to me. Like it, it, it's a lack of control. Yeah, and I, I it, that's definitely, I think, a theme that's really insisted upon in Aliens, um, you know, the, the corporate greed and um, how humans are, I'm not sure if we can say naughty words, so humans are hurting other humans, um, but I think one, one of the things that really struck me on this rewatch with Ash is that it's a pretty harsh reveal, and it's a pretty brutal scene where Ash is you know, Ash uh, pins Ripley down, and then in yeah, what in one of the movie's many rape allegories, starts trying to shove a magazine down her throat, and then Parker comes and basically takes his head off. You know, so it's a very brutal, dark scene, and I think there's just some. It's 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 interesting in that you. Know, Without that scene, a lot of the brutality, the, the more disturbing aspects of the film would all be confined to the alien, to the creature, to this other thing that's out there in nature. But with Ash and with what he represents, with the, corp, with the company behind him, it's also putting a lot of that, that brutality back on humans. Um, you know, humans are the real monsters. You know, it's kind of a common fantasy sci-fi trope. But, you know, this is a, you know, I think it really does help build that sense of oppression. It's not just that, it's not just that um, Ripley and the crew are in this bad situation with an alien. They don't have anywhere they can turn to. They can't turn to the company. They're out in, it's like the, the, the original movie poster said, in space, nobody can hear you scream. And having Ash turn on them, having, knowing that there's nobody at home that cares about them really increases that sense of isolation and desperateness and that sense that almost like that, it's almost like this movie almost like there's no God in this movie. Like there's nobody these characters can turn to for help. They're on their own and nobody would care if they die. Yeah. Um, so Arthur Harrow was saying um, in, in response to your original question there on this topic, Dom, uh, that it adds a sense of betrayal and that, you know, being sent to a place specifically to pick up a monster that would eat them. Like, it, you know, it's not just an accident. Um, the company knew about the alien and so you know when they learn that it makes it seem much more much worse than if they had just sort of like discovered an alien and it's like oh you know bring it back so we can look at it it's it's it becomes a much more sinister to know that they were actually sending them out um, and i think that's kind of where you were going to right ashley um yeah and and that was um i mean i guess maybe now that we have Prometheus and Alien Covenant, but it was never quite clear to me, did they happen upon the the signal? And once the company recognized what it was that made them change course, or did they know that with them going into the uh, the mission to start with? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know what you guys think. I, I still don't feel like I have a clear answer on that, but it's also been a while since I've seen Prometheus and Alien Covenant. So. I mean, if we were just taking it as a standalone, which which it was when it first came out, I don't think that's clearly defined within mm -hmm. the parameters of this movie. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps it is in 
Dom would know if it is in future installments, but. Um. Well, Prometheus was actually, Prometheus actually takes place on a different planet. So the spaceship is not the same as the one we see in Alien. And so I don't quite, yeah, I don't think they've definitively answered how the company knew, but I think it's implied that something that happened in Prometheus or Covenant got back to the company. Um, there's supposed to be a third movie after Covenant, but I don't, it's not clear if that's coming out. And my guess is that would have actually provided a more definitive answer. Right, like the link between yeah the you know the earlier and the current movies. But I just always I just always thought it was fascinating how little we know about this universe from. You know, it feels very real, but we don't know a lot about it. And I don't know, again, maybe this is nostalgia, but as a kid, I just thought that was really, really interesting. You know, like I could like try to fill some of that out myself. And it just, it made it, it made the universe feel larger. Whereas with Prometheus and Covenant, and I like Prometheus, but it, 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 when they started to nail things down, it, some, it some, sometimes felt a bit too tight as if, you know, you had a, the script writer was trying to stitch everything together, and you can see the you can see the seams and the stitching, um, and it sometimes felt a bit less real. Yeah, leaving certain things undefined, strangely enough, adds to the. I mean, because that's a very realistic headspace. Mm -hmm. To yeah. you know, the world around us is real, but like. Do you feel like you know what's going on? I don't, you know, like mm. there's lots of things I don't understand about the, you know, opaque motivations of companies and, you know, people who are making decisions that affect me and everything. Um, mm. So I think that, you know, that lends something to the verisimilitude that it presents a world that feels real in the detail, but when you're done, you're left with all these questions that, you know, you then can go off and try to speculate about on your own. Um, so you brought up the, um, one of the many rape metaphors, and um, we have this slide, which we haven't got to yet, but maybe we can start talking about some of these, uh, these gender and sexuality uh, you know, motifs throughout the episode. We haven't got to it, but some of our uh, attend, uh, we, we, we've been seeing that some of our attendees have been commenting on some of the, the points here already. So um, yeah, we can try to go back through some of the comments they've made. But yeah, I mean, um, Kat, you put this one together, right? So like, do you, where do you want to start? Because <laughs> there's a lot here. Well, I just sort of threw everything on that I could think of or find reference to. So, um, I mean, we can kind of start anywhere. I mean, we sort of, we have, we've kind of talked around Ripley, but we haven't talked about her too much sure. yet. Um, what, how do we kind of see the character now? Um, clearly she's iconic um, and has been. I mean, Ashley, before we started broadcasting was listing whoever, some professor's list of all the, you know, action sci-fi heroines who've come since that owe something to Ripley in this movie. Um, so how do we sort of see that? Is she, you know, there, there's been critique of this movie too. Is she feminist? Is it, is it that she's a, you know, 
in a traditionally masculine role, she just happens to be played by a woman instead. Um, is her role gender neutral, which apparently was how the original scripts were written without the characters defined one way or the other. Um, yeah, and I mean, I'm interested to hear on, you know, in terms of the genre too, because if you've never seen Aliens or if you haven't seen it in a long time, it, it's easy to forget the difference in tone and how much Aliens I mean, all you have to do is like Google the poster and some images to see like the difference in visual style of her kind of with like a huge gun and sweaty and like, you know, being like, you know, action hero menaced by, you know, all the things. Whereas like we've talked about through this that, you know, quote, nothing happens for the first half of the movie. And then it's this slow burn and it's really not till the very end that things sort of come to a head. And even then she's not so much, you know, Rambo as like just trying to sort of get to the shuttle and survive. Um, so I don't know, I feel like maybe, do we overestimate the character in this movie based on the sequels or are those sort of feminist action hero things there? I don't know, I'm just throwing that out. Yeah, I, I do. I do. I do think that point is well taken, and that it's it's very easy to look back at this movie now with aliens in mind and recontextualize the character in that way. Um, having said that, um, I really do like how Ripley doesn't start off as an action hero in this movie. I, I, I you know, I, I just it's some I my favorite types of characters are those who start off as regular people or normal and grow into that role. Um, and Ripley was actually, you know, and we talked about how she was written, the, the original character was written in a gender neutral way, but you know, Ripley was actually a very important character for me as a younger person. And, and being able to envision female action heroes, and I don't, I don't want to say that's just alien. It's probably aliens as well. But you know, like there weren't a lot of movies with female stars, especially not in science fiction. And you know, I think Alien, Aliens is one of those movies that you know, kind of for me, you know, as a as a as a male, you know, broke down that that barrier and said, you know, kind of let me realize, you know, hey, you know, women can do this too. Um, and um, you know, I think part of the you know, for Alien contributes though is um, somebody who is smart and tough. She's not an action hero in Alien, mm -hmm. but she's still somebody who's comfortable with authority, who you know, is intelligent. You know, when 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 uh, Dallas wants to be led on the ship, she's the one who insists on following quarantine procedures. And you know, she she doesn't back down. And uh, she's, you know, she is, she holds her ground. Uh, you know, she's the one who survives, and again, she survives because she's smart. You know, she survives because she has a plan, because she's careful, and and luck, obviously. Um, so I think, you know, I think those so the, the roots of the action hero, I think, were there. You know, it wasn't just it wasn't like she got the magical powers and aliens, and suddenly, you know, could blow, you know shoot shoot a bunch of aliens. Like the the, the this movie, I think this movie adds a lot to her. And you know, gives there's a, she already has a lot of strength in this movie.
Yeah, we have some votes in the chat for the kind of gender neutral approach of her femininity isn't made in a special point, but neither is she just a male character with, you know, who happens to be played by a woman that, you know, mm -hmm. she has qualities that are sort of crossover, you know, or are lacking stereotypes in either direction. Mm -hmm. um, and I agree that it's nice that she's not born an action hero. Um, I've railed many times against the kind of strong female characters trope. Um, kind of for that reason, it, it kind of, you know, it can take women out of one box and put them in another. And there's many different ways to be feminine other than to be strong and shoot things. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. So it's kind of nice to see her evolve by necessity as she's trying to survive, you know, to start out as smart and cautious. And those are her kind of qualities. And, you know, it's only when their lives are threatened that she finds she has this sort of physical resourcefulness as well. Yeah, one of the one of the things I, I really like about Ripley, first of all, when somebody says Ripley, my first thought is cosplay goals. Um, because I like to do stuff like that. But um, it, Ripley in this film, she's she's not necessarily defined by gender characteristics. She's defined as someone who um, gets up and does what needs to be done. Um, if that makes sense, uh, because you know she's you know she's adamant about you know hey we have to follow quarantine procedures. You know she's somebody who does her job um and tries to do it well and do it right um i appreciate that um but she um you you see her in aliens um she has that caring um motherly side as well with newt and you know of course that's that's a whole other thing but you know just to, but just to focus on this film you have um i mean yeah you could you could read it gender neutral uh but I, I like what you said, Kat, about how she's not, you know, she's not Wonder Woman, if that makes sense. Like she's she's um, she's just a normal person that does what needs to be done, and I I really like that about her. Um, and you know, one other thing we should all remember is this movie is what forty years old now, um, so there is some context we have to remember. So in the late seventies. Other sci-fi franchises, when they had women, you know, Princess Leia was a great character in Star Wars, you know, so I'll put her to the other side. But you know, a lot of other sci-fi franchises weren't that great. You know, Uhura in Star Trek is great to have a female on the bridge, but she never did anything. Um, in Battlestar Galactica, the, TV, the older TV show, there's actually an episode where, you know, I forget why, but the, the, the they had to, you know, they, they, they ran out of pilots, so they had to use some of the women to fly the ships, and it's a bit of a farce. The women are like, oh, I don't know what button to press. I don't know how to fly. What am I doing? And yeah, so that was the depiction of a lot of women in sci-fi, and you know, it wasn't much better outside of sci-fi. So this is, yeah, so yeah, again, just to emphasize that you know, Ripley, I think, really was an achievement and is not is still an achievement. I, th I think it's also important to note that Alien got greenlit because of Star Wars. Hmm. Um, um, 20th Century Fox released Star Wars in 77, 
didn't know it was going to be, you know, the world changing success that it was. And so after that, um, all of these movie studios were like, let's do everything in space. Mm -hmm. Um, And Alien had, um, if I remember right, had kind of been shelved. But then um, after the success of Star Wars, like, oh, no, no, let's do this again. Let's put everybody in space. It's great. Um, So I and I have to wonder, would we have had Ripley without Leia? Um, Because Leia was really the first female um, heroine, you know, in in a science fiction film. that wasn't somebody's girlfriend or somebody's mom or somebody's sister. She was, you know, she's a princess, but she's also taking charge and um, leading her own rescue mission. Um, and I mean, that's honestly, that's kind of what Ripley ends up doing. <laughs> like everybody else gets, you know, eaten. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she ends up leading her own rescue mission, doing her own thing. Her and Jones. Well, Don't forget and the cat. to that point, and the cat. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to that point, right? So uh, I, I take uh, very well the comments about, you know, this being a sci-fi film, um, but I don't also agree that it's not a horror film because uh, there is a very clear trope going back um, through the horror genre of that final girl who uh, sort of identified by Carol Clover um, and and the quote there you can see she actually um, talks about Ripley sort of owing at least at least in one direction um, maybe not every direction uh, a sort of um, you know debt to to that idea of the final girl in in the horror slasher genre um, who typically is uh, if not and if if not exactly genderless or or gender neutral like uh you know more masculine maybe than you know the other women in the film um not always you know so it, you know she might be the brunette whereas all the others are blondes and that that kind of thing and um you know has a little more you know maybe uh well you know uh, as clover puts it, her smartness gravity competence and mechanical and other practical manners and sexual reluctance set her apart, um, specifically apart from the other women in those stories. Um, so I wonder, like, given that, and I know, I know we've got another slide to talk about genre, but is that maybe, is there something going on here where sort of we're getting something new, not just, it's not just like bringing something new sort of into science fiction out of whole cloth, but maybe borrowing from, you know, this other tradition and, and kind of helping to, uh, you know, maybe make both of them a little, a little more interesting and, and seeing what you do when you can kind of blend those ideas. I'll be honest, I don't really watch a lot of horror and I certainly don't know, I'm not enough, uh, strong enough to know what the state of horror films is like in the in this in the late 70s like i know texas chainsaw massacre i've never seen it but i know that was a big influence on alien and it at least got a sight of that but i don't know, do you have a sense of like was this was this actually the final girl trope was that actually a thing in the 70s where that was something well that kind of yeah so okay. so clover clover identifies uh particularly uh the trope from about 1974 through the early 80s. So this is pretty much right smack in the middle 
of when she's, you know, identifying movies with her. I mean, she, there are like sort of proto examples back further, even going, um, uh, uh, I, I was going to give some specific examples, but I can't find them here in my in my notes that I had taken. So, um, but yeah, I mean, she does go back into like the late '60s with some like earlier examples, but I don't. There, it's more uh, along the lines of of like what you were talking about, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, and then uh, you know some of the Friday the Thirteenth and that kind of thing. Um, a couple but of it does span. In, uh, a couple of people are throwing in Halloween as well. Which yep. is, yeah, that out. would be another one. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely, you know, again, I, I, I take your point well, Dom, that, uh, you know, this is, there's definitely, definitely an aspect where this is science fiction, like, you know, straight up. But, um, I mean, you know, lines are fuzzy. Genres yeah. get blurred. Um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah it happens quite a bit. And so it seems to me that there's, there's a pretty strong um, idea going on there. And then um, even uh, going to the point above it of the monstrous feminine, I think is also um, very much in that sort of horror, but maybe also slightly into sci-fi tradition as well. Mm. well that, that's one of the things I really like about this film is that it is both. It is firmly both. Um, it's, it's, yeah, you can talk about Alien a lot um, in in terms of landmark science fiction films, um, but it also combines those those really the best elements of a horror film. Um, and one of the things I, I really like about this film is, um, as I mentioned earlier, I used to not like horror movies at all, um, and this is one of the first ones that I really watched that I actually really liked. Um, but uh, the thing that I liked about it was that the monster is always in shadow. And that's a very Hitchcock sort of thing to do. And I actually really like Albert Hitchcock a lot. Um, as I've gotten more familiar with the, the horror genre, um, you know, watching um, John Carpenter's work, um, Friday the 13th, um, um, Nightmare on Elm Street, they it's not always what you see right in front of you that's scary. Um, what, one of the... A couple years ago, I got I, I was lucky enough to see um, Alien on the big screen. Same year, I also got to see Halloween and Halloween 2 on the big screen. Um, and the cinematography in all of those films is just incredible. Um, but the thing that's scariest to me and what still makes me jump about Alien today is that final scene where she's in the escape pod and she's right there at the control panel and all of a sudden the hand jumps out and it, I know it's coming every time and I still jump. Um, and it's because of that, you know, the the horror that's unseen. I love that um, in in my horror films. I've noticed I have a type, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> the other thing I like about that scene is um, how it hides in sort of the duct work of the yeah. ship. So, I mean, even if you've never seen it, you probably know it's in there somewhere, right? Yeah. Like your instincts are telling you that, you know, as soon as the shuttle launches, like the alien is in there. Um, so whether you know it's coming or aren't quite sure, you're looking for it. And the way that it blends into, you know, the kind of, you know, mechanics of the piping and uh, everything around her, um, it's that um, you're kind of referring to this like Jaws effect of yep. the shark that you don't see is so much scarier than, yep. you know, the shark that you do see. Um, 
And by the time you see the shark, you're so scared that it doesn't matter if it's big and hokey and looks fake. You know, you're kind of on board. But the fact that it goes so long without showing you something, it's just the effect of what's unseen that does all the work. And I think this movie trades on that. And deliberately, like, their pitch was Jaws in space. So, um, you know, they're learning a <laughs> well, few lessons from the things that have come a few years prior. Yeah. Um, so Arthur mentions that a big difference between older horror before the 70s and uh, horror since then is the monster being off screen and being more of the scariness of the suspense versus the monster, you know, sort of being there in plain sight and, you know, more of the uh, the 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 um, you know the 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 blood and gore and and the sort of the the torture porn I think is the uh, term that they use for that type of thing. So um, yeah, and that's uh, what's interesting. That too is I've I've also seen arguments um, if you go back even further of um, the difference between sort of book monsters and movie monsters. You know where the book monster is more of the psychological uh you know think of frankenstein in the book right versus frankenstein in the movie where it's all about the sight and the visual and the the presence of that so i i it's interesting that there it, it's maybe there's more of a uh longer term trend there and and more of a you know um moving one from from that internal psychological suspenseful scaredness type of thing to the more visceral body horror uh, type of um, reaction and, and that. Oh, 99% of that was budget. Um, and Alien, I mean, they had a, if you look at the, the suit, it's a, it's a pretty cheap suit that doesn't look very good, but it's, you know, they, so they hide the suit and Jaws is the same. The, the, the shark looks hokey, but you do a quick cut and you do a few edits and, you know, it's, they sell it. Um, which kind of brings me to an odd question, and I don't know if this is a, a rhetorical question, but if, as many people, including all of us, seem to just to believe that horror works best when the the monster, the alien, or the the demon, or whatever it is, is kept off screen, and you build that suspense, and like, why don't movies, why don't horror movies do that now? Like the the other the later alien movies like Alien Covenant, you see the alien jumping around all over the place. Like there's nothing, you know. Back then they had to do that because they had to film this way because of the budget. But like, there's nothing restricting filmmakers now. Like they could cut back on how much they show the alien or the the, the monster, but they don't. And I'm just, I don't know. Is it just that the younger generation has different tastes, or you know, is am I am I missing something? I think there's a there's a technology issue um, here because we now have the tech to ma actually make those sorts of things look l legitimately real and terrifying on screen, yeah. whereas you know, 40 years ago we didn't have that. I'm curious now because um, a couple nights ago I got to introduce Alien to a couple friends of mine, and um, one of my friends said um, one of the things that she thought was really interesting about the film is that because the monster was kept in shadow, um, you you don't see the, you know, the hokiness of the suit and 40 years later, it still looks good. Are we yeah. going to be able to say the same about Alien Covenant, which, you know, was oh, very no. gory horror versus in shadow psychological horror? You know, I mean, 
technology is going forward, is it is it going to look as good? Probably not. Um, is it going to be iconic in some way? Maybe because it's still a lot more like the H.R. Geiger original artwork. Um, so at least from that perspective, it might be interesting. But um, go back and look at Alien Resurrection, like this one does. Yeah, like Alien Resurrection, Alien vs. Predator. Those CGI aliens have not aged very well. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, this is speculative, but I think there's something to Mike Moore's comment here about um, current storytellers um, being uh, guilty of giving audiences what they're asking for. And I think that's part of it. Of, um, I mean, maybe especially when it is a franchise, when it's something that is familiar and you know the reason that these movies are getting sort of everything is getting rebooted and sequelized and greenlit and sort of you know continued forever is you know the the sort of brand recognizability of it um that's not solely i'm not saying that every sequel is devoid of creative value but like i think there's a sense of like if you want to get people to come into your theater and pay you know, a $15 ticket price, you know, plus snacks um, of like feeling like you're owed some sort of gratification of the images on your screen. Um, so I, I, you know, I think that probably has something, but I think it's probably to the detriment of mm. most of the, of the movies. I think, you know, that's, I, you know, most people, even those of us who all go to those movies and buy those tickets agree that it's not as effective as when you didn't know what the monster looked like, really. Um, and I think there's just, there's always something about practical effects. Um, as good as CG can be, there's something about light bouncing off of a physical object that has a particular effect in a, on film, I think, that even if it's hokey, if it's done well, it has, you know, it can clearly last for 30 or 40 years. Um, yeah, and I mean, so there are certainly examples, as um, Joshua Grohl is pointing out, that uh, there are some, some of the better horror movies still do that. Um, I mean, oh, yeah. I, I guess we could debate whether, um, this is horror or suspense, but if, if anyone else has seen A Quiet Place yet, I would say that goes in that direction of, you know, being more suggestive than, uh, you know, showing. I mean, you you do certainly see the creatures at some point, but it's it's not the main, you know, part of the movie, so. Um, Anything else on sort of gender and and I know we sort of wandered all over the place as well, but um, before we before we move on, um, well, I do kind of want to hear people's. Maybe there's not a ton to say, but um, I'm a little bit curious to hear people's thoughts about, um, I guess, more about this kind of monstrous feminine idea and the, you know, Dom touched on it briefly. The, um, you know, magazine in the mouth. It was just like. Mm -hmm. A very bizarre and memorable way of killing somebody. Um, and I guess I'm I, clearly there are these motifs um, that you know the the amount of uh, 
sexual and reproductive imagery in these movies is, you know, undeniable. Um, we all agree on that. I guess my question is kind of what do we do with it? Um, like, you know, this quote I put up about Alien is a rape movie with male victims. And I guess that gets at the idea of the monster's feminine, that it's, you know, the, the female sexuality and reproduction that's terrifying for the men. So it's all about them getting, you know, impregnated and, you know, sort of, you know, put into a position of vulnerability that they're not used to be, used to being put in. But then at the same time, you know, we're kind of noting that there are examples of that imagery against the women, the female characters. Um, and, the, you know, there's lots of phallic imagery as well. So is it just that that imagery is scary or effective or looks cool? Do we think there's some sort of thematic backbone to that, I guess? Oh, and Arthur is asking about Lambert. So I have a bullet here about mm. Lambert as a transgender woman, which I only just found today while researching. Um, apparently, and this is from Aliens, so this is retcon, but apparently there is a brief moment in Aliens where the, the bios of the crew flash on screen. And there's some reference to Lambert having been gone through sexual reassignment surgery hmm. um which i i don't honestly you know i'm sure that's retcon i don't think there's anything in this in this movie to indicate that um but people have then gone back and sort of you know tried to see how does how do we factor that into the gender and sex dynamics between the characters on the film I never caught that in Aliens. I, I know the scene you're talking about. I just I didn't I didn't see that. I mean, I I didn't you know, not having seen Aliens and uh, not having seen this before. I didn't think of her as a transgender woman at all. So I yeah, and that's just sort I'm of kind a of little... with Arthur on that one that it just kind of seems out of left field to me. But and that's uh, sort of a piece of trivia. I don't I don't think that it doesn't seem to have played a part in the making of the original alien itself as far as i can tell yeah i don't i don't have i don't actually i've never heard that come up in terms of the making of the one thing that's very interesting and disturbing about lambert and her death is if you pay attention and see how the alien kills her and specifically what it does with its tail, it definitely involves, you know, sexual imagery and sexual, you know, parts of the body. Um, and I'm just kind of, I'm trying to, I'm kind of thinking out loud now, you know, it's like Lambert as a transgender woman. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting in that that's, that's how he dies. And if that's the case, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. It just, it's, it's there in that, Lambert is the only, you know, member of the crew who's killed in that way. Um, um, you know, most of the other, you know, the men, um, uh, Kane, Ash, and Dallas are actually killed through impregnation. You don't see it in the movie, but then the director's cut, there's a scene where um, the alien actually implants Brett and 
Kane, uh, sorry, Bre uh, Brett and Dallas with uh, with eggs, and they they get chest bursted. So, um, so most of the men die through impregnation, which is kind of an interesting take. Um, you know, it's a sexual theme. Um, Parker is the only one, the male, the only male who doesn't, which, and that's because he was sort of trying to defend Lambert from the aliens. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I, like you said, I'm not really sure what to do with this. The, the imagery is definitely there. Um, the gender deaths are definitely there. I just don't know. I'm not quite sure what to do with it. It's making me think of Evil Dead, and I can't remember what year Evil Dead came out. So if anybody knows that off the top of my off the top of their head, that would be helpful. Eighty one, eighty one. So that was that was the post Alien. Oh. Yeah, I don't. I'm not quite sure what to do with it either. And I wonder if um, it seems that the reviews when it came out were somewhat mixed. Um, and I wonder if that had something to do with it, the sense of the kind of nastiness of some of those aspects without maybe, you know, a, I don't know, a, a clear reason as to what it's going for. Um, but I don't know, maybe we've exhausted this slide. Um, well. So the one thing I just, did just want to say is, um, so Mike Moore says, um, so Alien is cool with having monstrous feminine, but we're not too big on negative sides to femininity um, lately, uh, with men being the problem, um, I guess, referencing sort of the Me Too and, and lots of um, those types of things going on. But I would say, I, I guess my understanding, and maybe it's wrong, of the monstrous feminine is that it's um clearly sort of from a male perspective and that it's a misconstrual of femininity not like supposed to be some sort of uh you know uh uh exact or or you know accurate depiction of what females actually are but it's actually more of like metaphor for like male fears about what females are and that sort of thing um yeah. So yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I, you may be right, Kat, maybe we've exhausted the slide um, and we can certainly move on to other things, but just wanted to make sure that I pointed that out because I, I don't think that it's saying that like females are bad. It's saying, you know, this is sort of a, a, a inaccurate or metaphorical depiction of how, of, of the fear of the feminine um, by men. Right, usually, and, and I don't think, nor is it saying that, uh, therefore the the alien or whatever is you know the monster in this movie is cool for being monstrous you know i don't think it's necessarily saying that uh you know that that's something that this image of femininity is is something to aspire to necessarily i don't think that's that's really the point Um, kind of building on the horror tropes, we don't have to talk as long about this slide as um, the other one, but I did want to bring up um, the idea of uh, the cabin scenario, which is my own little minor 
uh, addition to sort of film and uh, television genre um, theory, I guess. Um, so actually, first of all, I want to point out this uh, spaceship here. First thing I thought of when I saw that was it's the Alliance from Firefly. Um, <laughs> it sort of has that, you know, like tower kind of look the vertical to it. Structure. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but beyond that, um, so just to real quick to sort of uh, talk about my own uh, theory here for a minute, and then you guys can say yay or nay and, and add your own thoughts if you have any. Um, is that it's sort of an intersection between two traditions, one of them being um, cinematically the road horror tradition, um, sort of identified by Finn Bradley in um, the Irish Gothic, or the Journal of Irish Gothic Film or Fan, whatever whatever that, that journal is, there's a link there um, that you can all look at later, um, which actually comes out of a fairy tale tradition of Warren Marchin, which is sort of um, the sort of red, Little Red Riding Hood fairy types of fairy tales where you have someone going off into the woods and, you know, being alone and um, maybe there's not always literally a cabin, but, um, you know, sort of encountering dangers along the way, um, which I'm sure we can all think of plenty of fairy tales that uh, have those. And then the um, other sort of tradition is actually referencing back again to Carol Clover um, and her identification of the terrible place, which is, um, I guess, sort of building off of, of the gender um, idea she she refers to as um, a place that's typically dark, damp, and intrauterine, um, and has uh, is sort of notable for being a place where some sort of atrocity or death um, has taken place. And um, so sort of putting those two together, you get this idea of, you know, the cabin in the woods, which is obviously a very uh, sort of standard horror trope. Um, and kind of, you know, has these three conditions around it. Um, again, sort of a remote location, such as woods. And the effect of that is that it, you know, cuts off characters. Um, space does that fairly effectively, I think. Um, some sort of man-made construction that further uh, cuts off the characters from the sort of external wilderness, in this case, a spaceship. Um, and then the monstrous threat that sort of comes from the wilderness or lives in the wilderness that, uh, you know, attacks or, you know, threatens and, and um, assaults the characters. Um, and sort of the thing that, that I found in looking at all the various examples, and this, is, this was specifically in context of um, Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard's Cabin in the Woods uh, movie, um, but I also went through um, sort of various Whedon shows and, and identified episodes and stuff that that sort of did the same thing, is that it it kind of describes this ambiguous relationship between modern technology and the wilderness and kind of this idea of going out and exploration and, um, you know, that that we sort of still have this fear of the wilderness and, and even the frontier of, you know, where the wilderness meets civilization, but we don't uh, necessarily know what to do with that, even though it's, there's not much wilderness left. And so I think that's where sci-fi comes in and, you know, kind of provides that opportunity to look out into space as that new frontier, that new wilderness. And, um, and obviously 
Um, for those of you who might be taking uh, or wanting to take Amy Sturgis' Science Fiction Part 1 this semester at Signum, she talks a lot about that sort of idea as well in her class. Um, I, I definitely think this fits in that idea of a cabin scenario. Um, you know, just given the sort of three conditions that I list there. And I think, um, again, I've only seen this once, so I can't say that I have all the character insights that you guys have. But one of the things I think the cabin scenario does is that it it brings the characters together in a way that kind of forces them to face uh, conflicts and situations that maybe otherwise they would sort of be setting aside. And I think we definitely see that here, like with you know Ripley trying to insist on following the quarantine protocols and nobody listening to her or you know one person not listening to her or whatever. And so um, those are the sort of situations I think that you know this sort of scenario excels in. Um, but I want to kind of throw it out to you guys. Any initial thoughts or or not initial thoughts that you have here? Um, okay, so this is this is an interesting question because I think the answer depends upon Prometheus and what your view on Prometheus is. So putting putting Prometheus aside for a minute, you know, I, when I first saw this film, Alien, my understanding was that the alien eggs were natural, and maybe that this this ship that the aliens themselves didn't build that ship, but maybe they somehow were smuggled on or were were carried on like um and 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 then started uh, attacking the crew of that ship um so that would have indicated that would have been yes so that would have been a monstrous threat that lives within or originates from the wilderness with prometheus though you know spoiler alert for prometheus we find out that the aliens are actually biological weapons developed by those space jockeys which i think puts a very different spin on this because it's no longer it's no longer this like man versus wilderness type of story. And yeah, so the monster technically, yes, they find the monster on a planet outside of the bounds of civilization, but the monster itself is also a product of a civilization, which um you know it's it's more you know so like in Prometheus it's cast more as you know, the, the alien being um, like an avenging angel or like God's wrath upon humanity. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that means this is not a cabin in the woods scenario, if you believe Prometheus, but it definitely, I think it's definitely not as clean a fit if you accept Prometheus in the canon. I mean, I guess, I guess the question, you know, that could be asked too is, you know, are the, the alien, like granted that if, you know, they're a biological creation um which we don't i guess we don't know that in this movie right when it when it comes out like there's no necessarily evidence for that one way or the other um you know could they still be considered maybe feral or something like that um we, you know which would still be wild in a sense so um yeah i, I mean i don't i don't know that that necessarily um that that necessarily prevents it from being a cabin scenario because it's still it's still sort of a, a danger that you're encountering in the wild. But well, it's it's also know. something that's 
completely uncontainable too like anytime in any of the films anytime you you people try to contain or um ensnare or you know it, you know control a xenomorph um in some way it ends very poorly for everyone um so um i i think from that scenario i mean definitely without prometheus you can see it at this death totally works um I think it was Roger Ebert um, in his review of Alien. He and he he panned it. Um, he said this is a haunted house in space. Um, mm. and that, I think that totally works with the uh, the cabin in the stars, um, cabin in the woods motif. And we're getting some objections to bringing in Prometheus from uh, <laughs> yeah our commenters, yeah. Um, which you know are are valid objections. Perhaps. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, um, Curtis, maybe you started to say this, or maybe I'm just remembering it from when I read your paper, but I think part of your argument had to do with what is the effect of this on the group of characters, um, and uh, how do you see uh, the Ash plot working or not working with that? Yeah, so that's a good question. I did sort of briefly say that um a few minutes ago but yeah i don't know i mean so one of the one of the key components right is is being cut off um so if for anyone who's seen the cabin in the woods movie um the joss whedon and andrew goddard one you know uh one of the characters says you know i want to go somewhere where they can't globally position my ass for a weekend right so um that idea of of you know, there in the movie, he's expressing, you know, a desire to get away from civilization and technology and all of that. Um, here in this movie, that's a very scary thing. And what I find interesting with the question of Ash is that they are cut off as far as like being able to transmit and stuff, but he's he's still got the orders, right? Like he's still kind of in a sense in touch with civilization but the rest of the crew is cut off. So the question becomes, is he, does he become part of the monster or, you know, the monstrous cabin scenario, I guess. And I don't, I think I would have to watch it a couple of times to really be able to formulate um, a, a valid opinion as to, you know, how that affects things. But I think they, uh, I think that's really, really interesting when, it you know someone's cut off but not everyone is cut off and here it's ash who's actually not cut off but you know that doesn't that doesn't like stave uh the rest of the crew and of course uh you know going back to the cabin in the woods movie the whole premise of that movie too is that they're like being surveilled the entire time anyway and so what they think they're cut off but they're not really and there's a you know i think there's lots of variations i think a lot of these sort of genre identifications when you when you get into these it's like you know you're never going to have a movie that fits a hundred percent you know most of them are going to be like you know some sort of venn diagram where maybe it's you know more or less overlapping but then there's always going to be some kind of variation or you know maybe it it doesn't perfectly fit within in the whole or whatever right um, but it doesn't really violate any of your conditions if you don't consider him one of 
the group of characters in the first place. It's sort of well, on rewatch, you kind of realize he's this um, stealth, like you know, uh, agent within their midst and is part of the part of the alien, part of the scenario in the first place, and isn't really one of the the characters who are cut off in this cabin. Yeah, or right. I mean, you can get into all sorts of discussions about you know, is he a person? Is is he? Does he have um, you know agency in the same way that the humans do, and that kind of thing too? Like, so I think there's yeah, that quite. If he is a person, then what does that mean? You know, is he? Is that make him more or less monstrous? I don't. You know, I think I think uh, again, I would have to watch it. You know, a couple more times probably to kind of formulate my own answer to that, but yeah. Um, Arthur is also suggesting a, another condition where they're warned not to go, um, which uh, so, which which does seem to certainly with this movie that it there there is the initial discussion of we've intercepted this you know this SOS and what are we going to do about it and it's that horror movie thing of you're screaming at the TV not to do it but of course they do. No, that's definitely true, and yeah. I mean it, it's a common horror movie trope. Um, yeah, they stop the gas station and, you know, there's like the creepy old guy who's like, oh, don't go to that cabin. There's stories about it. And, you know, they're like, ah, what do you know, old man? And then go on anyway. I mean, I don't, I don't identify that as particular to the cabin scenario, but it certainly is a trope in, in horror films, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of torn about that, though, because I, I guess... One of the things I appreciate about Alien is is that unlike a lot of horror movies, I don't find myself screaming at the characters for being stupid. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I guess I, I, I except I, for when they bring them in without quarantine, that's kind of dumb. well, no. But Ash, yeah, no. But look at the movie. Ash is the one who does that, and we sure. later find out that Ash is his company agent and he's a robot. So his decision makes sense given his objectives. Like he is not being stupid. He is he is following his plan. In that in that case, so yeah. but in and terms it's such of, a relief that he doesn't convince anyone to do it, that he yeah, just yeah. just does it on his own, because then you don't have the thing of why would you listen to this shady yeah, guy? Exactly. Yeah, but and I think in terms of going to the planet, though, it's also going back to what we were saying before about this being a melody of sci-fi and horror. You know, I think the first part of the movie it doesn't it doesn't go too far in foreshadowing that this is going to be a horror movie. Yeah, the plant's kind of stormy and stuff. Like, it, you don't you don't expect that this is going to be. It, you're going to find this wonderful, friendly alien, but it also, you know, there aren't there also aren't a lot of jump scares in that earlier part of the movie that prime you into thinking that this is horror. Like, there's that element of exploration and discovery, and um, so I don't know. I guess I don't I don't find myself thinking the character the characters were dumb for answering this distress call. Yeah, no. Um, well, I mean, and they couldn't not answer it, right? Yeah, like well, that's part of it. <laughs> um, yeah, the the no, I think I think that's a valid point, and I think that goes back to that this is a blending of genres. So it's it might fit the cabin scenario the way I sort of define it in my paper, but it that doesn't mean it's just a cabin scenario or that it's you know adhering strictly to the sort of horror uh, traditions of that cabin scenario. Um, 
Because I think, you know, I think, again, like this is, there's a fairy tale tradition to this idea as well. And I think, you know, finding yourself in an unexpected realm with sort of a, you know, the perilous realm, right, of a magical creature that is not uh, wholly good and, and is, you know, maybe trying to kill you. Um, that's not like just a horror scenario, you know, that comes out of a, well, I mean, I guess we can debate whether or not fairy tales are, are horror stories at some other time, but, um, you know, I think there's, there's other traditions going back there too, um, for this and then bringing in this sort of sci-fi element. Um, yeah, it's, I, I agree. Like there's not, I don't think we have to like, by bringing in this one particular thing or, or bringing in, you know, the final girl trope, um, that we talked about before or any other particular trope necessarily means that we have to then, you know, bring everything else wholesale from the horror genre. There's, um, certainly has its own, uh, elements here. Um, and some of those come from elsewhere. All right. Well, thank you for indulging me in that. Um, <laughs> so to Arthur's other point here that he was just saying, another uh, another common trope is that they split up and all go off alone. Um, but yeah, we have to stick together. Mm. We can't do that. We can't do that thing where we all split up and go off alone. Um, but, you know. What a... Uh, Kat, what what was your what were you looking for with this uh, slide? Just um, well, I think we've touched on a lot of it, so um, I'll try to think if there's aspects we haven't got to yet. But um, just wanted to talk about like you know, I mean, we've talked about the genre blending, but I kind mm -hmm. of wanted at least a moment to dwell on you know the outright horror aspects of it. Um, and I guess I mean maybe uh. I don't know if there's anything else left to say about the production design. I have a, you know, piece of artwork from H.R. Geiger here, which was, um, you know, the inspiration, not just the designer of the film, but the inspiration for it. The screenwriter uh, had the movie in his mind of sort of what he wanted to do, but um, was very much influenced by seeing Geiger's artwork when he was, um, working on another film in Paris. Um, and so he says, I ended up writing a script about a Geiger monster. So he's very much writing to this imagery rather than writing a scary movie and then having a production designer come along and interpret his, you know, his words. So, um, yeah, I mean, we sort of talked about the, the blending of, you know, biology and machinery and the way it sort of melds into the background of the ships and the gothic aspects of that and everything. But I don't know. Does anybody else have any thoughts about the alien itself or the design of things? Well, FYI, that other movie that Geiger was working on in Paris was Dune. Was Dune, you, right. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen, if you've seen the great documentary, Jodorowsky's Dune. Um, an unproduced Dune, yeah, right? Unproduced it didn't go Dune. forward. Yeah. 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 Um, definitely check that out. I mean, all I'll say is, like, I love the alien design. Like I said, I had the, the toys when I was younger. Um, 
you know, it's just a, it's a really, it's a, it's a, just a very, it looks alien. And that's something that sounds obvious, but if you look at most aliens in movies, you know, Star Trek, obviously most of the aliens look like people with funny ears or foreheads, but even in Star Wars, even when they get a bit more extreme, they kind of look like variant variants on Earth life. And this, the alien in this movie just, like, I don't, how would you classify him as far, you know, if you look, if you try to fit him in the, our taxonomy of, of life on Earth, is he, he's not a mammal, he's not a, he's not a crustacean, like, I don't, he really is alien in that he just doesn't fit with how we conceive of life on Earth. Yeah, um, Mike Moore's pointing out, you know, the look that of the being part undersea, part machine, you know, but not any like one or the other. Very, yeah. I, I guess, Lovecraftian comes to mind. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry, Ashley. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember now. There's another quote I saw of someone saying, "This is the best Lovecraft movie." that isn't based on a love, you know, better than any Lovecraft adaptation, you know? Um, I, so I, I'm a compulsive reader of internet movie database and I retain all of the information, um, but I can't ever tell you where I read it. Uh, but I did read um, about the, the creature design and how when they were creating the costume, they wanted to make it to where it looked like no human could possibly be in this costume. Um, and so it, it uh, it's so, um, you know, with the, with the elongated head and then you've got the tail and all this other stuff, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it, you, you've never seen anything like it before. I know people that got to see it in the theater, um, and they said, uh, the, the experience of going in there and seeing an alien that is completely unlike any other alien you've ever seen in a film uh, before was just, uh, that made it that much more horrifying. Um, so I, I think that's really interesting about the character design. Yeah, and things like who would think to have it, another mouth come out of its mouth? Yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> a phallic symbol within the phallic symbol. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe we covered a lot of this too, is that um, I think it was Kate Neville who I think had to leave, um, said something about this being, you know, sort of a working class uh, story in a way, right? Like the, these are just normal people, uh, you know, lower class, just kind of like doing a job and being told to do something else. And they, they don't have any choice but to do it. Like there's not, you know, they can't really refuse. You, you even get, you know, the two guys who are like trying to, you know, maybe hold off on doing more until they can get, you know, yeah. their bonus or, or at least a contract for the bonus and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's definitely some interesting interplay between, um, you know, the, the sort of 
again, being, being told to go do this thing and not really having that choice not to, not to go explore. Um, you know, the only, the only way forward is to kind of go this way off to the side for a bit. Um, but yeah, I, any, any other thoughts around, I, I know we talked a bit of, um, that whole sort of corporate betrayal aspect of it. Yeah, or the or the verisimilitude in general, the yeah. kind of lived-in aspect of the characters yeah. and the spaceships and everything. Yeah, just, just off like that, that conversation you pointed out. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, this is my dumb comment, but uh, I just like 100 years in the future, we're still wearing Chuck Taylors, and that makes me very happy. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that, that conversation that Curtis pointed out, I just also find really interesting whenever I see this movie, well, Brett and Parker are talking about their bonuses, and and there is some world building going on there, to be fair. I mean, they're, they're talking about they're setting up the existence of the company, but it's mostly just character development, and there's no big payoff scene later where mm -hmm. because Brett works so hard, he gets his bonus or, or anything right. like that. It's mostly just character building. It's showing that these are two, you know, working class stiffs. And I just love that about this movie. Um, you know, usually, usually if you have a scene like that in a movie nowadays, it's like, it, there's like this big payoff with like blinking lights. And it's like, no, these, these are just people. Like, it's like a documentary crew just went on the ship and is recording what they do and talk about. Well, and I'm, and, um, you know, drawn to a comparison to a episode of Doctor Who that Curtis and I recently talked about on our podcast called Oxygen, um, where you do get this kind of mm. after it, it's a very alien, I would say, of as Doctor Who episodes go, it's one that's clearly drawing on alien for its sort of ideas and everything. Um, but at the end, when they've sort of escaped and uh, it, it, it has similar themes of evil corporations sort of, you know, killing its working class, you know, employees and everything. Um, you, you hear of, you don't even see, you just hear of this kind of big emotional payoff or what's supposed to be where um, they went and protested and rebelled and then that was the end of the company and that was the end of capitalism in space. And it's just this moment of like, okay. Um, and that's exactly what this movie doesn't do. I mean, especially if you don't take any sequels into account, it ends with, you're not quite sure what, you know, Ripley's gonna go back and maybe she's able to mount some sort of expose of the company. Um, but maybe not. We don't. We're not privy to that information. It's sort of confined entirely to her experience in this particular adventure, and isn't left with. Here's some grand statement about her, how her experience helped to kind of create some sort of utopian future. Cruise expendable. <laughs> Speaking of verisimilitude, I think everybody probably knows that famously the scene is was sort of semi-improvised, that they didn't necessarily tell 
the actors exactly what was going to happen. Um, I guess John Hurt knew, but everybody else, they didn't, you know, they didn't really clue in. So, um, which I guess gets back to the acting we talked about earlier of you don't need a lot of backstory and, you know, dialogue telling you about the characters when you have actors who can just sort of tell you through their natural reactions to a scene. So yeah, anything else about like the other members of the crew that we didn't cover already? One other point I'll bring up that I think just goes back to the gender uh, discussion we had earlier is that a, a you know, common trope in, in, in movies, you know, is whenever you have two women, it, it's almost like there has to be some, some sort of antagonism between them. Like there's some competition, um, is like, and it, like, it, you don't have, you don't get any of that here between Ripley and Lambert. There's no, like, they're not, they're not like, and there's no love, there's no real love story either. You know, like, mm -hmm. some fans have speculated that maybe, like, somebody's sleeping around, but it's like it's not. You, it, you don't fall into those tropes either, which is just kind of nice. And I'd forgotten too how far Lambert makes it into the movie, which was kind of nice to see. Because in my kind of revisionist memory, of course she's like the first to go. You know, I mean after after John Hurt. You know, yeah. I was just expecting, having not seen it in a while, um, I was expecting her to be dispatched earlier than she was. So it's kind of nice to see the order in which they go through things is a bit unexpected. Um. Does it pass the Bechdel test? Huh. Well, I think so. I mean, Lambert and Ripley definitely talk about how the heck they're gonna, they, draw, they talk about how they're gonna draw straws or mm -hmm. kill them on. They argue about what's the best course of action, right? Um, so, I mean, Parker's involved in that scene as well, but there is interaction between the two female characters, yeah. I wasn't expecting that slide to pop up. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, I think we we've talked a bit about structure. I mean, we spent so much time talking about other stuff before we got to the actual content of that first slide, but I feel like we covered a lot of these things, but um, you know, the, the sort of slow burn and the, you know, nothing happens for the first 45 minutes or so. Um, any other thoughts about the structure and sort of the role? Well, we have the role of Ash here, but I guess really any of the characters, cause that's kind of, as you were just saying, like Lambert makes it maybe further than you would expect given if, if like you just knew like what the genre and like the characters were there and you knew there were two women characters and you might think the one of them would be the first to die but um that doesn't happen like you said so any other thoughts about uh those types of structural or or one thing uh, i see i see uh one of the bullet points watching the alien slow growth and 
that's actually the one criticism I have of this movie. You know, the alien grows pretty quickly. And you know, I kind of wish there had been an intermediate stage in the growth from the chestburster to huge, enormous monster. Um, you know, again, I budget constraints, yada, yada, yada. I understand all that. But it would have been nice to, in a, in a, like maybe something like a child alien or something like that. Because um, it does seem a bit, you know, I do have to suspend this. I, I can suspend the disbelief, but it's a bit of an effort. I think, I mean, it, that's it. It's, it grows so quickly that that's fine. You can kind of imagine that this life form, you know, goes from yeah. you know, embryo to adulthood within a day. Um, but I think, I think you're right. It could use something intermediate in terms of size just to give you a sense of the scale going from, you know, something that big to the completely fully grown alien would have, would have helped that along, I think. Well, say what you will about Alien Covenant, but you get that in that film uh, with the neomorph. Yeah, that is true. Although I noticed in Prometheus, you get a, you, there's a similar problem with that, uh, what do they call it, the trilobite, that face hurter like alien starts off small and then Next time you see it, it's like filling up the whole room. So maybe it is just something with the alien biology. So um, David in the chat is saying that we do get intermediate sizes. He says as it scurries around, you can see that it is different sizes. So maybe that's true. I mean, I, I personally, I could have used a little more clarity there, but um, but I I'm willing to. To believe well, the, that there are kind of different stages of development. I mean, you have well, you have the chest burst, or it's the little worm-like alien that pops out of the chest, and then the next time you see the alien, it's the it's the creature played by the guy in the suit, and mm. they don't change the actors in the suit. So, you know, if they if they were you know if they were trying to signal that it's a different size, I mean, it, it looks like it's the same size, and you know, the actor physically is the same size, so. But yeah, maybe it's just something that they wanted to do but didn't really pull off. Well, that you do have the scene where um, Harry Dean Stanton's character does find the uh, the skin. Yeah. Uh, that oh, sheds, yeah, yeah. Uh, Got it. yeah. I mean, that's that's about as close to intermediate as you get in this film. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's the skin that shed is certainly bigger than the chest burster. Oh yeah. Like there's obviously been been growth off screen. It's just like when when Harry Dean when Harry Dean Stanton's character Brett is killed. I kind of feel like that you know, the alien that appears in that scene should have been like half the size. Mm. And then the next time we see the alien when he kills Dallas, maybe like, you know, half again. And then maybe the alien goes to full size at the, <laughs> at the grows to full size at the very end of the movie, something like that. Okay. Again, they didn't have the budget to do that. I get it. Almost had a face hugger there. Um. <laughs> it is face hugger ever. All right. Well, so sort of in the last few minutes here, then I guess let's talk about adaptations. <laughs> and we only have a few minutes, so like maybe not too crazy. Um, we can maybe even revisit some of these uh, in future sessions. But um, yeah, it's funny. I actually, so I saw Infinity War like two days after I watched Alien for the first time. So it's funny that we've got that up here. 
um, talk about pacing and differences uh, and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, very different. Um, but also up here is actually one of my favorites, Event Horizon. Um, I love that movie. Probably the last movie I've seen that legitimately scared the bejesus out of me. Um, <laughs> so I'll just throw that out there. Oh, no spoilers, Arthur says, so be careful with Infinity War if anybody uh, mm. anybody goes for that. Well, I'm not spoiler phobic, but some people might be. With Infinity War, it's not necessarily a spoiler because, I mean, if you are a comics reader, you will know there's a particular race of creatures that look an awful lot like xenomorphs. Um, but um, that's all I'll say about that. Um, so, full disclosure, I wrote my master's thesis at Signum on um, adaptation and use Stranger Things as a case study. Um, and so one of the things that I talked about um, was Alien's influence on Stranger Things, specifically with the creation of the, the Demogorgon um, and how uh, the Duffer Brothers actually went and looked at the original concept art um, for Alien um, for their basis for the Demogorgon. Uh, one of the other things that really that you can see in Stranger Things um, in, in the first season a lot of how it's shot is very much like Alien. The monster is always in shadow. You never get a good look at it until the very end. Um, and then um, in season two, um, slight spoilers for season... Is everybody here seeing season two? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, the demodogs are um, very much like aliens. Um, you have all, all the little critters that are running around. All the extra aliens are, are very much like the xenomorphs in Aliens. Uh, which is fun. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting about Stranger Things is um, uh, there's an Entertainment Weekly article last February where uh, the Duffer Brothers were uh, talking specifically how with Stranger Things Season 2, they wanted to um, make it a sequel that uh, stood on its own, like Terminator 2 and like Aliens. Uh, they specifically referenced Aliens. And the other thing I really love about it um, is uh the first time Eleven's on screen in season two is like oh look this is there's this little mini Sigourney Weaver running around and that just makes me very very happy um so I could talk for a very long time about Stranger Things but I will spare you that um Curtis already mentioned uh, A Quiet Place earlier which is very quickly moved into like my top 10 favorite films of all time um but uh I saw it again yesterday and I was just very struck how uh the creatures in A Quiet Place um and again, same same kinds of shooting. You you never see them um, very clearly um, until the very end. And even in the very end, you don't get a you know. There are never any long shots on these creatures, um, but they're they're very much a hybrid of a xenomorph and several other creatures. Um, the aliens and signs are like that too. And again, same shot the same way as well. Um, again, I I said it before. I have a type. And all my favorite movies, like at least with horror and science fiction elements, they all have the same kind of creature that I think is both fascinating and scary. Um, so I actually mentioned when before uh, when we were playing this, the uh, Alien Isolation game, which I actually recommend to anybody who is an Alien fan. Alien, not Aliens. Um, and this is it's a very interesting adaptation because there have been a lot of Aliens games. Which is very easy, you know. 
you put a gun in a space marine's hand and you go shoot up a bunch of aliens and video games do that's a that video games do that all the time but there really hadn't been any alien games and you know that's partly because it's a horror movie and how do you adapt that into a video game um you know if you have a gun and you can you can you can just shoot the alien that doesn't recreate the experience of horror and so what the game does is it, it makes you very underpowered you have a very weak flamethrower you have a few tools like flares and stuff you don't you don't really have a lot to work with um the alien's always more powerful than you um and it really draws just like the movie how the movie draws things out the game draws the motions out so if you want to open a door you have to press one button to lift the lever another button to like the down button to you know push the lever down um and it creates that tension where you're like okay well i'm spending 30 seconds opening this door is the alien sneaking up behind me probably yes but it's just it's so it's a it's a clever it's a clever attempt to try to recreate some of that that experience in a video game and make you feel like you really are outmatched and you don't have you know, you're, you're not in control and so definitely recommend that you're, you're getting some support in the comments for uh, that game as well good especially the dlc which actually puts you on the nostromo and puts you in ellen ripley's shoes Somebody tell that me about kind of, uh, oh. oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, um, I was asking about Sunshine. I haven't seen that one before, so. Yeah, so Sunshine I threw in there as something with a very similar premise, um, at least in the beginning. The, the, you know, the monsters are, I won't, I guess I won't spoil what exactly the, you know, the enemy is in Sunshine, but um, in the premise, it's sort of, uh you know dirty rusty space crew that uh intercept a signal that they go off course to investigate um my memory is that it's not necessarily direct orders it's more of a choice to go investigate this thing but um you know they weigh their options and and naturally choose to go check out what the signal is and see you know investigate um and things uh go swiftly downhill from there so um you know i guess um rather than some things like you're talking about stranger things and infinity war where it's more the influence is more in the creature design um sunshine and event horizon to me are more in the atmosphere of you know how different different spins of how to do the horror movie in space as Influ as inspired by Alien, I guess. And with um with the video game that with isolation, um I guess that kind of gets at this Roger Ebert quote about how uh, Alien is more he thinks Alien is more cerebral than its sequels, and that its uh its influences he thinks unfortunately been from the more action heavy legacy of, of the franchise that kind of came in its wake. Um, do we think that's true? Are there any other examples of things where it's, you know, we can see the influence, but it's more in the contemplative qualities rather than the, the slow burn that we were talking about, rather than um, in the action? Well, I would say that's one of the reasons why I actually like Event Horizon. And obviously that's not a sequel 
to Alien, but I think it makes sense that there's a lot of similarities there being sort of the haunted house in space idea. Um, but it is more of an actual like haunting. And I think for that reason, it's more psychological than uh, visceral as far as the the monster and the horror goes. And so I think that's probably one of the reasons why I like it. It's actually been a little while since I've seen it. So I'll have to like go back and revisit it because I don't remember all of sort of the, the plot reasons for why they are what they are, but I definitely remember certain scenes and certain you know feelings <laughs> while uh watching those scenes um so yeah um i don't fully agree with roger ebert there and that um i i think so if if he's talking about aliens as the, one of the sequels um i think aliens very much made the right call to be action adventure because in james came james cameron the director of aliens has said this yeah, there's no way he's going to make a better space horror film than Ridley Scott did in Alien, so why try to compete? Um, so he went the action-adventure route. He went for the thrills, and I think the movie works that. It becomes more of an issue in films like Alien 3, Alien vs. Predator, Alien vs. Predator 2, where they're trying to be horror. They're trying to fill that same space, but they don't have that deliberateness and the, the uh, cerebralness. It, it, more about the gore, it's more about the alien attacking, and that's where I think he is dead on. Where just you know, they they don't. I don't think alien is a. I think alien does what it's trying to do so well that it's hard to top it. And when you try to top it, it doesn't work. Uh, Prometheus and Roger Ebert passed away unfortunately before Prometheus, but Prometheus I do think is a, you know, despite some of my snarky comments about it, actually is a pretty cerebral movie. There's some problems with it, but. Um, I think it does some interesting stuff. So it uh, looks like my alien is trying to call me. But yeah, anyways, I, so I, you know, the Prometheus direction is kind of, an, it has an interesting engagement with the original alien. Um, all right, I better go check, check her. <laughs> well, and that's probably a good place to stop. Thank you all for joining. Um, don't forget to come back for our next uh, film, which is the next star wars movie of course um and uh yeah we'll look forward to seeing you guys all in june see ya thank you Bye. have a good night see ya bye